You're listening to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols. Support for this project is provided by listeners like you. Visit my website at p3photographers.net for ideas on how you too can become a supporter of the project. Welcome to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols, the podcast where we celebrate early women artisan photographers. I'm your host, Lee McIntyre. Today's episode's a little bit different because I want to give you a taste of my paper from the American Historical Association's annual conference, which was held earlier this month in Chicago. For more information about any of the women discussed in today's episode, visit my website at p3photographers.net. That's letter P, number three, photographers.net. Today, I want to bring you the paper that I recently gave at the American Historical Association's annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois. My presentation was on January 4th, 2019, and was entitled Early Women Artisan Photographers, Narrative Nuances, 1840 to 1930. Often, when people hear that I'm investigating early women photographers who worked as professional photographers between 1840 and 1930, They have the same reaction that an acquaintance of mine in Italy had a couple of years ago. She said to me, women were professional photographers in the 1800s? I thought it was always a man under the hood. Listeners of this podcast wouldn't be surprised to learn that women started to pursue careers in photography as early as the men did, starting circa 1840. Women, of course, were some of the early adopters of photography who mastered ever-changing equipment and cutting-edge technology right from the beginning. I mean, not only did they produce remarkable photographs, but some also became successful photographic entrepreneurs, running thriving photography businesses for decades. But there's a popular misconception that women became professional photographers only after 1930, even though it's clear just from the U.S. Census records alone that women started well before that. Now, in this talk, we're going to interrogate some of the more common myths about early women professional photographers. We're going to try to untangle some of the nuances of the multi-threaded narratives that emerge from their stories. Among other things, we're going to try to understand why these talented entrepreneurs are so often not included in the historical record. My research focuses on what I call the workaday artisan photographers, the women who ran studios and made a living from taking everyday photographs of people, places, and things, producing a variety of outputs uh, from daguerreotypes and tintypes all the way through cabinet cards, matted prints, etc. Now, these included women like Mrs. Elizabeth Withington, who in 1857 opened up her studio in Ion City, California. And at the same time, on the other side of the country, A woman named Mrs. Lydia Hicks was working in her photographic gallery in Brooklyn, New York. The fact that both of these women were Mrs. leads us to meet the most common myth that I encounter about early women photographers. That is, if you find a married woman running a studio, she is, of course, married and a mere assistant to a photographer husband, or maybe she is his widow who's running his studio after his death. But that's just not the case. There were many married women whose husbands did not do photography, 
including, for example, Mrs. Elizabeth Withington, whose husband never did photography. Mrs. Withington took herself off to New York City in the 1850s to train with the well-known photographer Matthew Brady, who later went on to fame as a Civil War photographer. Elizabeth Withington returned to California and opened up her studio in 1857. She specialized both in studio portraits and beautiful landscaped images. During her own lifetime, Elizabeth Withington even gained renown among her fellow photographers for innovating a revolutionary wet plate photography process that allowed her to do landscape photography without having her own darkroom wagon parked on the side of the field. Not even Matthew Brady knew how to do that. As for Mrs. Lydia Hicks, well, she and her husband eventually did become partners for a short time there in Brooklyn. However, she's the one who actually opened the studio. Her husband was a shoe salesman, and she later taught him how to do photography and brought him into the business. By the way, when they actually divorced a few years later, she's the one who wound up with the studio as part of the divorce settlement. Now, as for the notion that a married woman running a studio was usually a widow running her late photographer husband's studio, well, in fact, there are indeed some women who did just that. They were indeed widows of photographers. But there are also many examples of widows running studios who were never married to photographers. One such example was Mrs. Robert E. Clark. She opened her studio to support herself after her husband, who was a Colorado marshal, was killed in a shootout in a line of duty. Now, the myths about early women photographers don't only apply to married women, of course. There are numerous myths that apply to single women as well. For example, there is the myth that single women always give up photography when they get married. And there's a more general myth that the woman is never the real photographer. There's always a man involved. That's, of course, easily refuted by numerous examples of both married women and also single women running studios by themselves, like Mrs. Withington and, for a while, Mrs. Hicks and Mrs. Clark, but also the single women running by themselves, or sometimes in partnership with other women, whether it's sisters, mothers, or unrelated women that they're partnered with in their studio. To counter several of the myths I've just discussed all at once, I want to focus for a moment on the life and career of a woman named Belle Bybee Chase. Now, Belle Bybee starts her career as a single woman in Harper, Kansas. She partners briefly there with a man who was no relation to her before running her own photography studio there in Harper. She and her former partner actually become competitors for a while there. Fast forward a few years, and we find her married to a man named D.B. Chase, who is a prominent Western photographer. Together, Belle and D.B. run the very popular Chase Studio in Denver. They manage that for several years until D.B. is rather publicly caught having an affair with their studio assistant. Belle sues D.B. for divorce, and she gets the studio as part of the settlement. Belle's career then reaches new heights when she becomes the owner-operator of the rebranded Mrs. B.B. Chase Studio in the mid-1890s and early 1900s. Belle is the toast of society not only personally, but also as the photographer to the society set there in Denver. 
Belle is so successful, she actually starts to expand into other towns in Colorado as well, at one point opening up a branch in Boulder, Colorado. But Belle ultimately closes down her Colorado business in 1905 when she marries a pharmaceutical salesman, and she moves with him to Cape Town, South Africa, where she opens a new photography studio. After her husband's death in South Africa, Belle returns to the U.S. and eventually opens up a photography studio in California, and then later winds up working for other photographers in Hawaii and California, working in the photography profession until her death in 1936. Now, her 50-plus years as a photographer really provides a counterpoint to another myth about early women photographers. And that's the idea that women photographers were not really that good at running photography businesses, and that therefore they necessarily had very short careers. But as we've seen with Belle B. Chase, she was in the photography business for over 50 years. Beyond Belle Chase, though, there are numerous successful female photographers who enjoyed careers for longer than 10 years. For example, let's consider the career of another woman photographer who I want to spotlight today, and that's a woman named Mrs. Rosa Reland. Now, Mrs. Reland ran what I call a small photographic empire between 1881 and 1910 when she opened multiple branches of her Reland photography studio in Kansas and neighboring states. For a time, she even ran a photocar, that is a private railroad car that served as a traveling photographic studio. Mrs. Vreeland's advertising campaigns in newspapers were remarkable for their really thematically creative approaches, which sometimes even included poetry. Mrs. Vreeland also understood the marketing importance of branding. You see, she initially achieved success when she was Mrs. Vreeland as a young farmer's wife when she opened her first studio. She maintained that Vreeland brand through three husbands and two divorces, briefly rebranding her studio as Vreeland Whitlock during her short second marriage to a man named Ogden Whitlock, a man who was never a photographer nor a partner in that business. After that marriage ended in divorce, Rosa reverted back to using Mrs. Vreeland for her studio name, even though she hadn't been Mrs. Vreeland in quite some time. Eventually, Rosa sells all of her Kansas studio branches when she marries a dentist and moves to Oklahoma. But the Vreeland brand moves with her when she opens up her new Vreeland studio in Alva, Oklahoma, around 1900. Not only was Mrs. Vreeland a very successful early photographic entrepreneur, she also served as a teacher and role model for several women who learned photography from her and then later struck out on their own. All right, so if these early women photographers did exist in this early period of photography, and some of them even had long, successful careers, why are they and their achievements so often left out when talking about the early days of photography? Well, one explanation that has been suggested to me by a number of archivists and historians that I've met over the past few years as I've been working on this project is that even if we accept that these women existed, at the end of the day, right, they were just artisan photographers running these studios, and therefore they never did anything interesting or innovative or really worthy of note. But that, of course, is another myth. 
There were many women whose work was very innovative. Others were even groundbreaking or award-winning in the areas of documentary, photography, architectural, journalistic, advertising, and of course, in the area of artistic photography. So for one example of that, I'd like to look at the career of a woman named Miss Margaret DeMott Brown. Margaret DeMott Brown started her career by teaching photography at the Illinois School for the Deaf in the early 1900s. On the side, though, she was also producing beautiful and highly acclaimed artistic pictorialist style photographs. At one point, she takes a year-long leave of absence from her teaching job and heads to New York City, where she works with Gertrude Casebeer and Clarence White. She's actually there when Gertrude Casebeer and Clarence White form their new Pictorial Photographers of America group. And Margaret Brown, in fact, becomes the corresponding secretary of this new group. Although she returns to Illinois to take up her teaching position, an unexpected legacy from a long-lost uncle actually allows her to quit her job and move across country and open her own artisan studio in Poughkeepsie, New York. While in Poughkeepsie, she builds a successful business that's in operation for over 20 years, initially modeling her business on the pictorialist portrait style popularized by Gertrude Casimir. Mark Brown's studio eventually expands to encompass a wide variety of genres, including taking yearbook photographs and graduation photographs and garden photographs, doing scientific studies and photographs of theater performances for the neighboring Vassar College, and also doing some architectural work and book illustrations for local historians and groups in town. Now, the one thing that Margaret Brown did not seem to ever advertise is baby pictures. And I want to mention that because that's actually another myth about women photographers, that they necessarily specialized in baby pictures. Certainly, artisan photographers, male or female, could make an excellent living by taking photos of babies and children. And of course, some women photographers did do that, but no more or less than their male counterparts. And there were even women like Mary Snodgrass, who was in Caldwell, Idaho. And she advertised in 1913 that she'd actually hired a man who had experience taking 10,000 baby pictures in three years. Mary Snodgrass certainly did not consider herself specializing in baby photographs. But getting back to Margaret Mott Brown, I've found no examples that she ever really did baby photographs, despite the fact that she did all these other wonderful genre examples that we find in various collections. And that is one of the things that the corollary to people saying that these women never did anything interesting is that, well, okay, maybe if they did anything interesting, it's harder to find. But interestingly, it turns out that Margaret DeMott Brown is not that hard to find. A few examples of her work are even in the collection at the Library of Congress, including a wonderful portrait of a very relaxed Franklin Delano Roosevelt before he was president. However, in the Library of Congress archive, that photo is identified only as being by Margaret DeMott Brown, photographer, with no information about where that photo came from or who that woman photographer was. And that's the problem. Photos like this by early women photographers, works that were celebrated in their own lifetimes, are out there, but they are routinely passed over. But with a little bit of digging, it's possible to piece together the wonderfully rich history of these women's careers. 
There's not, of course, a single narrative that emerges from their lives and careers. It's rather more nuanced than that, with multiple intertwined narrative threads. These women's photographic work truly represents the full gamut of photographic genres. As I said, some of them did artistic photography, some did documentary or scientific photography, others pursued a varied career that incorporated all of those elements and more. Some did groundbreaking, award-winning work, and that, at the very least, should be recognized and celebrated. But at their core, the careers of all of these early women photographers embraced the vital role of artisan photography. From taking portraits of people in all walks of life, to photos of businesses, of school classes, or of town events. I mean, in the days before Instagram, when everyone has a camera in their pocket, these women were key players as photographers, preserving the memories of everyday people's everyday lives. So yes, in the early days of photography, there definitely was sometimes a woman under that hood. Well, that was the end of my talk, which was part of a panel of papers about women photographers spanning from 1840 into the 20th century. By the way, I'd really like to thank Kelly Midori McCormick for inviting me to co-organize those panels with her. I started chatting with Kelly back in the fall of 2017. She's a grad student currently finishing her PhD at UCLA. Her research is on women photographers, albeit mid-20th century but a mutual acquaintance introduced us. And, well, our conversations were great, and one thing led to another, and ultimately led to our organizing these two panels about women photographers at the American Historical Association's 2019 conference. Anyway, I really want to thank Kelly. It was so much fun working with you and putting together these panels for AHA 2019. Now, in the lively discussion after the panel talks were finished, someone asked me, if it's possible to tell from looking at a picture if it was taken by a man or a woman. Well, this was actually great that someone brought this up because it's actually another myth. There is the notion that was actually common even in the 19th century that perhaps men and women took pictures differently. And that's apart from the idea that women maybe took more baby pictures than men did. And we've already seen that that's a myth. But when you look at the artisan photos, the portraits of people in the studios, you can't really tell by looking whether or not the picture was taken by a man or a woman. They were using the same techniques, they were using the same types of backdrops, they were using the same types of props, or they were using no props or backdrops at all. But it didn't matter whether it was a man or a woman, you really can't tell just by looking. During my talk at the AHA, I used some slides to show some examples of photographs and advertisements by the woman that I talked about. But I've actually shared even more photos and examples already here in episodes on photographs, pistols, and parasols. So in the episode notes for today's episode, I'm going to just put links to the episodes that cover all the women I talked about. That includes Elizabeth Withington, Lydia Hicks, Belle Bybee Chase, Rosa Vreeland, Margaret DeMott Brown, and Mary Snodgrass. Plus, I gave the talk at the HA without actually reading from a piece of paper, which is what I always do when I do my talks. But 
For this conference, I actually did prepare a written version of the talk. So, instead of including a transcript on the website this time, I'm going to provide a link to the draft of the written version of the paper. It won't be a word-for-word -word transcript, but close. Anyway, as always, all of the material will be available on my website at p3photographers.net. That's letter P, number 3, photographers.net. If you have any questions or just want to drop me a line, send an email to podcast at p3photographers.net. And of course, you can always follow Photographs, Pistols, and Paracels on Facebook at facebook.com slash p3photographers. By the way, if you already follow the podcast on Facebook, then you'll already know that I had some good news to share earlier this month when Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols became available on Spotify. So now you can enjoy listening to the podcast on Spotify as well as all the other podcast directories. Anyway, that's it for today. Thanks for stopping by for today's virtual visit to AHA 2019. Until next time, I'm Lee, and this is Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols.